All right, what am I doing here? All right, here we go. You and your crummy comic books, that's all you ever think about. They're comics, you ass! Tell me how comic books make you feel, Dave. Well, it'll make me feel too good. A couple of times you read a comic book, I chew up. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? This comic book describes a sexual aberration so shocking that I couldn't mention even the scientific term on television. I think there ought to be a law against them. Tonight I'm going to show you why. Everybody. Welcome back to Views from the Long Box. As ever, I am your host, Michael Bailey, and this is episode 38 of the show for May 7th, 2008, and it's good to be back, too. After a solid month of team-ups, so to speak, I am here with what is fast becoming a rare solo episode. I would have actually done this last week, but it was kind of ill... Something, once again, took up residence in my chest, set up base camp, and decided to do its best to make me feel like crap. It wasn't life-threatening or anything, but it was enough for me not to want to do much of anything, you know, which let's say, podcast. I even went to the doctor, which is something I rarely do, not out of any particular fear of the medical industry, but just as a general sense of feeling that it's a hassle. I'm very picky when it comes to a physician, and even pickier after visiting my doctor's office uh, around the first of the year and dealing not with my primary physician, but the physician's assistant, which is kind of a dubious position at best. Who are you? I'm the physician's assistant. What's that? Well, I assist the physician. Why aren't you a doctor? And then the guy stares at you like you just took a dump on his rug and tells you to get the hell out of his office. While that particular exchange never actually happened a few months back, I went into the doctor's office with an upper respiratory infection, like I had last week, and was sent to the emergency room because the physician's assistant heard my symptoms, looked at me being kind of overweight, decided to do an EKG, which came back a little wonky because of the upper respiratory infection and generally being nervous because some guy who isn't a doctor but is in fact the doctor's faithful ward or something just told me that I needed an EKG. 
Long story short, EKG came back funky town. They sent me to the emergency room, and after a battery of tests, I was informed that I had an upper respiratory infection. So, when it came back five months or so later last week, uh, because I just wore myself down, I made an appointment, and when they asked me if I wanted to see the physician's assistant, I said I refused to see that man, because that sounds a lot better than no way in hell am I ever, ever dealing with that man again. (sighs) It was an interesting week, despite feeling like 16 pounds of ass shoved into a four-pound bag. I got caught up on some podcasts listening, which was nice. I discovered that Sebastian Bach, he of Skid Row fame, had released an album where he sings This Is The Moment from one of my favorite musicals of all times, Jekyll and Hyde. I like Sebastian Bach, too. I really do. He's a comic fan, if you didn't know. Well, I don't know if he's a fan in the the going-to-the-shop-every-week kind of sense, but I've seen some old-school footage of him wearing these pants with the Batman symbol all over it. And back in 2003, when they were gearing up for the first Hulk movie, MTV did a neat 30-minute thing where they went over the character's history, and in addition to interviewing Peter David, my all-time favorite Hulk writer, they interviewed Sebastian Youth Gone Wild Bach, who was wearing a Punisher club shirt and showed off the locked cabinet where he keeps his comics, and I think he even had a copy of The Incredible Hulk number 6 in there, which was kind of neat. I thought that was cool. A few years later, VH1 did some kind of program where they showcased some musician's home life, and there was Hulk stuff all over Box House. So I am working under the assumption that even if he doesn't read the latest issue as it comes out, that he's at least a Hulk fan, which makes him okay in my book. Not that that's, you know, something you have to be. By the way, I'm going to out Shag while he's not here to defend himself. Apparently, in addition to being a comics fan and having this man crush on Doctor Who, Shag was a metalhead in his younger years. Didn't know this until recently, but it just made me laugh. Laugh in a way that you can do at someone you call a friend. Then again, I like metal too, so what the hell do I know? This week, I'm going to start an irregular feature here at Views, inspired by one of my cohorts over at the Unique Geek, Scott C. of NeedCoffee.com. In one of his regular and very much appreciated emails, he suggested I do an episode of the various Elseworlds one-shots and miniseries DC has produced over the years, and I thought it was such a good idea that I would use it as fodder for several episodes. Which means, if I can't think of anything to do on a given week, I'll just talk about some Elseworlds book. Because that's how I roll. They haven't done one in years, really, but during the 90s, Elseworlds became a staple at DC in terms of prestige format comics, which was also known as the bookshelf format back in the 80s, because they were books designed to fit on a bookshelf. My guess is calling it that was an attempt on DC's part to make their books a little more legitimate in the eyes of the real world. The 80s were fraught with this kind of behavior. This was the era of the whole comics just aren't for kids anymore thing, which was understandable, but looking back, it's as if everyone involved in comics at the time had chips on their shoulders that were threatening to become malignant, and you had to jump up and down and say, look, hey, we're cool. We're not just for kids. It's not all bam, pow, whap. 
I swear to God. Like us. Oh, well. Times change. Not a whole lot, but, but they change. Anyway, in the 90s, especially the latter part of the decade, Elseworlds were a near-monthly thing. And I can see why, because it's a great concept on paper. DC even summed it up with a little mission statement at the beginning of their various graphic novels and miniseries. In Elseworlds, it reads, Heroes are taken from their usual settings and put into strange times and places, some that have existed or might have existed, and others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. (laughs) I like that. Shouldn't exist. (laughs) Shouldn't exist. Well, I got this story, but it shouldn't happen. Well, why are you telling it? Because it's kind of interesting. But you just said it shouldn't be told. But but I'm going to tell it, because because it shouldn't be told. It'll drive the character into a direction no one ever thought of. Yeah, that's really nice. <laughs> it shouldn't exist. What the hell does that mean? Anyways, that's a pretty simple you know, little mission statement. And considering the fact that DC ran hundreds of thousands of imaginary stories during the Silver Age, it makes sense that something similar would crop up for the then-current generation. It's a little silly, actually. Not in a bad way, and I'm certainly not trying to make fun of anyone here, or at least I'm not trying to make fun of anybody in a malicious way, but I think Alan Moore summed it up best in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow when he wrote something to the effect of imaginary stories. Aren't they all? I mean, they're all made up. The basis of any creative endeavor is saying, well, what if this happened? I guess historical fiction would have to be considered on a different plane because you're talking about an actual event some of the time, but unless you're working from a transcript or interview, the author has to make something up. Classifying a story as imaginary or as an Elseworlds is basically declaring that there is an actual timeline where events really happen, and then there's this other reality where this, this, and that happened. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of continuity, and think that a creative universe or multiverse like DC or Marvel works best when there is a pretty clear through line of events. But at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that it's all made up. It just depends on what flavor you like your fiction in. Continuity or continuity-free? Low sodium. But that's probably a subject for another episode. Even though I am the previously mentioned big fan of continuity, I enjoyed many of the Elseworlds DC put out. They weren't all good. I mean, In Darkest Night sucked so hard that it had its own event horizon, but that particular book was a good example of saying, what if, in this case, what if Batman became a Green Lantern does not always end up in comic book gold. God, that book was terrible. I bought it thinking, well, this has to be good, and end up wanting an apology or something from all parties involved. That's the kind of book where you want a written explanation on your desk by 8 a.m. or someone's going to be hitting the unemployment office. I don't like doing this, but unless you are a dead, solid completist and want every single Elseworlds, Batman, or Green Lantern book ever printed, leave this one in the back issue bin or... God willing, leave it in the quarter bin, because that's that's where it belongs. But there were good ones. The Golden Age, which has since been renamed JSA The Golden Age, was probably one of the best miniseries from the 90s. 
Batman Brotherhood of the Bat was an interesting one from 1995, mostly because it utilized designs artists came up with uh, the previous year for a new Batman costume. Kind of a weak concept to hang a story around, but I rather enjoyed it. Uh, JSA The Liberty Files was fantastic. Dan Jolly knocked that one out of the park. Superman Cal was good. Uh, the first two Superman and Batman generations were fantastic, even though I had issues with the third volume. And then there's Kingdom Come, which was the highest profile Elseworlds book ever, unless you want to count Dark Knight Returns as an Elseworlds book, which DC decided rather late in the game to do during the mid-90s. I don't know. I don't know if I like the concept of Dark Knight being considered an Elseworlds story. I, I think it works pretty much on its own merits. Uh, but, you know, what are you going to do? This is comics. I've said, <laughs> I've said it before, and I still believe it. In comics, what actually happened doesn't mean anything. All that matters is what they tell us now. Like the Trinity, as in Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Now there is a marketing gimmick if I have ever heard one. But again, that's a show for another topic. Or, I guess, a topic for another show. God! <clears throat> Man, still probably not feeling well, I guess. Amusingly, what could be considered the first official Elseworlds wasn't called such either when it was published in 1989. I remember reading about it in the Newsarama and Comic Book Resources of my youth, Comic Scene Magazine. I can't say that it's hard to remember a time where I didn't get minute-by-minute updates of the world of comics via the tubes of the World Wide Web, because I vividly remember what that was like. My ear wasn't to the ground of comics fandom in 1989, and all I had to go on regarding what was coming up was the next issue box house ads in the books themselves, and comic scene, which came out every two months, and from latter 1988 until about 1991 or so, I bought nearly every bi-monthly issue. I devoured those magazines. Uh, God, read every article, even if it was for something that I wouldn't normally want to learn about. The tenth issue of that magazine, cover dated December 1989, was a spooky issue with an EC Comics-themed cover. Inside, the fine people at Comic Scene gave us articles on David Quinn and Tim Vigil's Faust, the then-upcoming oh, horrible Beetlejuice animated series, uh, the now-defunct Apple Comics Dracula book, the Hellraiser comic Marvel was planning at the time, Michael T. Gilbert's Mr. Monster, and this three-page article on some book called Gotham by Gaslight. Right away, I didn't like the art from the article. At the time, I wasn't the biggest fan of Mike Mignola's art style. That has, of course, changed. But when I was 12, 13 years old, I was... Well, I was like a lot of teenagers... I wanted things a certain way, and if anything deviated from that course, I was of the opinion that it sucked. I remember telling someone at the time that Mignola made Superman look like a truck driver in Cosmic Odyssey because I thought I was being funny. Ah, to be young and foolish again. I guess all I have to do to remember those days is just go on to any given comic book's message board or forum. Ha <laughs> ha. Ah. I kid. I kid because I care, and hopefully you know that. I was, however, very interested in the book the article was pimping. 
writer Brian Augustine, who was also an editor at DC, and would go on to edit most of Mark Wade's run on The Flash before stepping down and co-writing the book, made the book sound all kinds of fun, and you couldn't argue with the concept. Batman versus Jack the Ripper. I mean, this was 1989. The previous year saw a resurgence in interest of Jack the Ripper since it was the centennial of the serial killer's first and, well, and, well, last appearance, really. The whole thing sounded pretty cool, and I dutifully bought a copy at the Walden Books in Trexertown Mall when it came out sometime later. Then, as now, I liked the book. It's a pretty simple plot. Bruce Wayne comes back from traveling abroad and begins his mission to avenge the death of his parents. Around the same time, that Jack the Ripper has also traveled to Gotham City and begins doing his thing as well. Eventually, Bruce Wayne is accused of being the Ripper and must escape imprisonment to clear his name. I won't give away all the story, since this is one of those times where I think you should experience the book for yourself instead of hearing me yak about it, but suffice to say, the identity of Jack the Ripper ties into the Batman's origin in a way that actually works, instead of some of the other ham-fisted attempts to put too much thought into why the Waynes were killed that I've seen in the past. Alfred and Jim Gordon are there as well, and I especially liked the fact that they put a hyphen between Bat and Man, which kind of harkened back to the character's first appearance. And the story still holds up, and and there's two reasons for that. One, it's a period piece, and more often than not, period pieces can hold up a lot better over time than something firmly rooted into whatever present it is set in. Two... And more importantly, Batman is one of the few characters you can drop into most time periods and still have work. They touched on this in the comic scene article, and Greg Rucka made the point in one of his word balloon interviews that you can pop a cap, or whatever, I guess, depending on the era, into the Waynes at any point in history. And add or subtract some zeros from the Wayne fortune, depending on the time period, and Batman can work. You really can't say that for many superheroes at DC or Marvel. Superman can somewhat work along those lines, but not as much as Batman, I think. Some characters only work in the era they were created. Take Captain America, for example. He only works in World War II. I'm sorry, but it's true. I firmly stand behind that line of thought. Cap only works as a product of fighting the Nazis. Anywhere else, and it just doesn't feel right. And, just to make it clear, I appreciate the art a heck of a lot more now because, well, I know better. (laughs) I'm not obsessed with Mike Mignola's art, but I sure do like it a lot more than I did when I was 13 and snotty. Gotham by Gaslight did have a sequel, which was published in 1991. It was called Batman Master of the Future, which continued the adventures of the 19th century Dark Knight. Brian Augustine returned and was joined by the fantastic Eduardo Barreto on art. The story wasn't as strong as Gaslight, but I still liked it. It had this really neat cover, which you can find at the homepage for this show. Since it wasn't until 1994 that I read the book, I became convinced for a time that if they ever adapted either Gotham by Gaslight or Master of the Future into film, that Adrian Paul of Highlander the Series fame should play Batman and Bruce Wayne. And while I don't know if it would work today, I still hold to the theory as far as the movie being produced in the 90s. 
I thought Adrian Paul had the look and the skill for the role. And since he had experience with the whole period piece thing, it seemed like a lock to me. Then again, I really liked the Highlander television series. Should have watched more of that when it was on. Eh, Oh well, there's always DVD. If you are interested in reading either book, you do have several options. I'm reasonably sure you can find the individual issues on eBay, at a convention, or even your local or online comic shop if they have a decent back-issue selection. In 2006, DC conveniently packaged both stories in one volume, priced to sell at $12.99. I used to own the original, but when that set came out, I gave those to a friend who liked Batman more than I did. Uh, I like reading them both together anyway, and the trade was just more convenient. DC Direct has put out a Gotham by Gaslight figure as well, which I will own in the next few weeks when I pick it up from Titans, my local comic shop, or LCS, yo. And that's pretty much the only appearances of the uh, 19th century version of Batman. Oh, and he was in a couple of countdown specials, but this is one of those rare times where I'm just going to close my eyes and put my hands over my ears and pretend that those never happened. It's going to take a while for me to forgive DC for countdown. It really is. God, that... God, it sucked. (sighs) Enough bile. And, uh... That's actually it for this week's episode. Not quite as long as some of the other ones, but I'm sure you'll appreciate that. I I hope you liked it. As always, you can write me with your comments on this or any other episode, as well as making suggestions for future topics. Just send those to Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, at viewsfromthelongbox.com. I'd also like to hear your thoughts on Gotham by Gaslight and any other Elseworlds title, because... Well, I I just would, okay? Is that so much to ask? Next week, on the 14th of May, I will be joined by a gentleman by the name of Keith Dallas. Keith was my editor over at the site that used to be called SilverBulletComicBooks.com back when I wrote reviews for them, and is an all-around nice guy. The subject of our discussion will be The Flash, since Keith has put together the upcoming Flash Companion for tomorrow's publishing, which I believe is coming out in July, so that ought to be fun. Other than that, I'm sure Shag will be on the show again soon, maybe even joined by Brad Douglas, who I I had on back in February, as I'm trying to work those particulars out now that I can actually record a conference call. I'm also toying around with doing an Iron Man-themed episode in honor of the movie, and at some point I'll get to an idea sent to me by a listener that involves the god-awful, never-aired-for-a-damn-good-reason Justice League of America TV pilot. Until then, you can always check out the official home for the show at viewsfromthelongbox.com. There you can find the RSS feed, the iTunes link, and hopefully soon a place where you can download and listen to the older episodes of the show. But as always, if you are the type to want to maybe check out the older episodes, avoid the two-part Hulk episode I did very early on in the show's run because they were awful. Uh, The shows are still stored at either MediaGauntlet.com or viewsfromthelongbox.blogspot.com. I'm still being very lazy about getting those moved over. 
There's also my somewhat daily Superman blog at www.fortressofbailytude.com, all one word. I am also part of the Unique Geek Podcast, which is putting out episodes like it's going out of style. And then there's the fact that I review books for the Superman homepage. Also, I recommend checking out Shag's blog at onceuponageek.com. He posts just about every day and is always a lot of fun. Views from the Long Box is presented by Fortress of Bailey Tude Productions in association with MediaGauntlet.com. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next week.